You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Amen. <clears throat> How are we doing? Good. Great. I like that. Thank you. Good to see everybody. Um, hey, if you're new here, we're in a series through the Gospel of Matthew, um, which has been excellent. Um, and so we would invite you to not only just listen to Matthew here on Sundays, but encouraging just to be steeped in Matthew throughout the week, all the time, morning and noon and evening, if you can, um, just reading it, praying through it, looking at it. Um, and the last few weeks, we've been walking through the Christmas story, and it's been so cozy hasn't it? It's been so peaceful. You can kind of feel the little light snow dropping, even though historically we know it was in the like summer. Um, and, you know, Jesus was born next to a fireplace, and uh, there was music playing, and Bing Crosby walks in and gives him a solo. And, and then you start actually listening to the story, and you walk through a Matthew series now, not in Christmas time. You take away all of that stuff, and it's nuts. It's a nuts story. That's the actual official Hebrew word, nuts, right? <laughs> Jesus is born into a scandal with his pregnant teenage mom, Mary, in a town not their home. Strange wise men from the east show up randomly and start worshiping your baby, saying this is going to be the Messiah. Not only did you get visited by angels in dreams, you're visited now in person with these wise men. Come to find out that these wise men had actually made a pit stop over at Herod's temple and completely offended him and made him pretty angry, that not considering him to be the real king. The wise men left there, visited King Jesus. Herod wanted to know where this King Jesus was so that he could also come and worship him. Did he want to worship him? No. <laughs> the answer is no. Right? He had very evil intentions. And when he found out he was duped by the wise men, when they were warned in a dream to not reveal baby Jesus' location to King Herod, he goes and he kills all the two-year-old and under boys in Bethlehem. This is not Christmas morning, right? This is not a cheerful story. This is absolutely horrific story. Jesus is born in a time and, and lived in early years of just like a pretty rough time. He's a tiny boy in the midst of incredible turmoil, tyrannical leadership among the people of God, and talk about a pretty stressed out mom and dad, right? Fleeing to Egypt, not knowing what's going to be next. Jesus began his life as a homeless refugee with a price on his head. And then we get to verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. This is good news for the people of Israel. Herod died. This is good news, right? Now, I want to talk briefly, if you'll nerd out with me for a second, about Herod and about what that means then for the land. What that means, because as we'll see, though it is good news, it also is different kind 
of news. And Herod's family is going to come up a couple of times in the Gospel of Matthew later on. So as we talked about, even when we were setting up the series, Herod, he gained his power through ruthlessness, through violence. Like he won a bunch of battles and did a bunch of stuff for Rome, and they honored him by saying, hey, you can be governor over this area. In fact, we'll even call you king so that you can rule autonomously because we trust you, because we've seen you in this. He gained his position, and for about 30-ish years, he ruled over the people of God right, as this king. Towards the end of his life, if you kind of look up the histories of Herod the Great, he fell into kind of great mental and physical disorder, paranoia, and he did some atrocious stuff. So he ended up actually murdering his wife because he thought she was plotting against him. She ended up going after her entire family and taking them out as well, and his own firstborn son. And then on top of that, one of the last things he did after was all the Bethlehem boy's story. So this guy is on a rampage. This guy is not well. It's very dark, very horrific. So for Mary and Joseph, we're in the scene now where they're in Egypt. They just, they're having these questions. When can we return? Is it safe to come home now? The angel comes to them and says, yes, Herod died. You can now return. Well, what happened to the territory then that Herod was over? So Herod had a will. He had a will of what would happen if he were to pass. He changed his will often, especially towards the end, because he was constantly thinking people were plotting against him. And Rome had some influence, too, of here's what we want to see. So I have a map up here that I found, um, and you can kind of see I zoomed out. So it basically, the territory got split up into his three sons, Archelaus, Philip, and Antipas. Okay, and all their first names, all their first titles was Herod. Okay, um, the pink area there, is Archelaus, and he wanted to be like his father. He wanted to be ruthless. He wanted to be just kind of like this, this person. I think I have another picture that zooms in a little bit more so you can see it. But he wanted to be like his father. He was like, I'm ruthless, I'm something, and he was not. He was actually really annoying to Rome, <laughs> and Rome actually exiled him. Not, he was only in power a few years, and they exiled him, and he wanted to be king, and they wouldn't give it to him. Very disliked by the Jewish people, um, only ruled for a little bit. So Actually, you can't see it, but after that, Rome just kind of put some curator kind of overseer in that pink area. Uh, the blue area, the light blue there, is Philip. So Philip, he got the smallest territory, which we all know if you're the sibling and you get the smallest territory, you're not super stoked. But he actually, he wasn't the worst leader. He was just a very worldly leader. So he had no, I, he had no like passion or anything to teach the people about God. He was very Greco-Roman. He was very into Hellenization of the area. Um, so that area comes up a little bit later in Matthew. But the Herod we will run into the most is Herod Antipas. And that's that green part up there with Galilee. And he has the majority of Galilee, and this is the Herod who will come up the most. And though it seems as though he's not as bad as his brother Archelaus in the pink area at first, um, later on we'll see that the, the apple does not fall too far from the tree of Herod the Great. And there's a lot of corruption that happens. So I just want you guys to have a visual. This is the backdrop. So Egypt is like way south. Like just imagine like, way, like Egypt is here, <laughs> right? So they had to come back and they wanted to go back to Bethlehem, but they ended up going all the way up and around up to Galilee. And there's, if you, you probably can't read it, but Nazareth is just right in there in Galilee, okay? So this is the backdrop that Joseph and Mary are coming back into, that now it's split. 
where is safe? Who's going to know us? Who's going to know what happened? Who's going to have the same heart and mind of the Father? Where do we go? So verse 22 of chapter 2. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, in that pink area, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Nazareth. Does that just feel kind of random? It's like, why would you go up there? What, what is up there? And as we'll see, almost nothing with Jesus is ever random, especially in the Gospels. So starting with, guess who's actually from Nazareth? Guess who's there? This is their home place. We can go to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. This is it's Luke's retelling of the Christmas story, part of it. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Whose hometown is Nazareth? Mary. Oh, and presumably Joseph, right? Mary's hometown. Like the Mary who mysteriously got pregnant in left for Bethlehem with Joseph, gave birth, fled to Egypt, and now years later is back. Now, quick caveat, have you ever like someone goes away, especially parents, like someone goes away to college or in military or something like that, and then they come back and you're like, there's something different about you. Like something happened to you. Like I can imagine that this scandalous teenager in Mary left, and that same Mary comes back with a husband a baby, and I would imagine a moderate a bit of trauma. And we aren't told her parents' reactions, her friends' reactions, like any of that stuff, but you can imagine she's walking back into her hometown after all of this. I want to focus on verse 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So far, we've seen Jesus fulfilling these prophecies, right? In chapter 1, there were a bunch of them. Even in his genealogy, there was a bunch of them. And he's filling these, these genealogies from Micah, from Hosea, from Isaiah, Jeremiah, and there's more. And here's another one, so that what would be fulfilled by the prophets. So what prophet spoke about Nazareth? That's the obvious question. And we'll go, and you can do it right now if you want. You can go to BibleGateway.com. You can search in the Old Testament reference for Nazarene. He'll be called a Nazarene, Nazareth, whatever, and you will come up with how many results? Zip. Zero results. Well, none specifically. And we've seen this in Matthew a couple of times. Now, if you remember the, the genealogy where he just changed a couple letters of a couple names and to mean like Psalms and prophets and all that kind of stuff, right? Matthew's used these certain hyperlinks. He's done these certain kind of artistic, creative things to kind of clue his hearers and readers into not just what's happening there, but also what's happening on a big scale level with God. And if you look back in Matthew, you can do that in your Bible now, all the times he quotes an Old Testament prophecy, he says, thus was fulfilled by the prophet and then whoever that particular prophet was. And we can go look up those references. But look again at the text here. It's very subtle, but it's specific. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. This is not a specific passage reference. 
but it's a thematic callback to what the prophets as a whole have been talking about. On the whole, the prophets foretell the redemption of God's people by God himself. And Matthew is trying to prove years after Jesus that Jesus was and is the Christ God himself. So I want to show you two major things that are happening from the prophets with Nazareth here. The first one, we need to go to a very key prophecy from Isaiah 11. This is Isaiah 11.1. And this was like very known. This is years before Jesus. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So we've walked through that story. You kind of know what that looks like. Jesse was the father of David, and Jesus is a descendant of David. So it's kind of this idea that the, that the Messiah would be the branch. He would be this branch. Out of this stump, there would be this tiny little, just, just imagine this long-forgotten stump, and then this tiny little stick kind of coming out, and it's got a little bit of life on it. And you're like, oh, that's cute, you know? But it's like not very impressive. You're not, you're not like staring at it, you know? It's insignificant but new life out of what was dead nonetheless. So over all, all the prophets over time, and you see this in Jeremiah, if you go read Zechariah and so forth, they start adopting this language, the Messiah would be known as the branch. Or literally, kind of the language is like the stick man. That's like literally the language that it would be, as of this theme from the prophets, okay? So let's get a little nerdy for a second. I'm not a language expert, but you can look this up yourself if you want. The town Nazareth comes from the Hebrew, not Zeret, okay, not Zeret, which is translated in Greek as Nazareth, which we get in English, Nazareth, right? Guess what the word for branch or stick is? Nazer. In Greek, Nazare, and in our English, Nazarene, right? Jesus, like a Nazarene, is literally in the language a stick figure. Like, literally, Jesus is the stick, the branch. By calling him a Nazarene, it's a double meaning of Ma in Matthew of, yes, he's from actual Nazareth, literally the sticks, which we'll see later, it kind of was, right? But he is also the Nazarene, the branch that we've all been waiting for. Rad, right? Thus fulfilling what the prophets have been talking about. And there's some awesome nerdiness with that, and that theology is super cool, but I'll tell you, it's super uncool to actually come from Nazareth, which is the second one we'll see in a second. There's a scene from John's gospel where Jesus is calling to Philip, one of his disciples, and he's asking him to follow him. And Philip is pumped. He's excited. And he's like, oh, let me go get my buddy Nate. So he runs over to his buddy Nathaniel, and he has this interaction. This is John 1:45. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we found him. We found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And out of all those things you just said, Nate's like, can anything come from Nazareth? Like, what are you talking? I think you have the wrong guy. Nothing good can come out of Nazareth. Matthew said it best, like Nazareth is literally the sticks. It's the boondocks. It's where you don't want your car to break down at night, right? It's not the proper place for anyone important, let alone the actual Messiah, to be from thus implementing, I think, the second meaning of Jesus being called a Nazarene, that he would be despised. There was a lot of prophecies that we know about he's going to come, he's going to be called King of Kings, he's going to be called Wonderful Counselor, he's going to be born to a virgin, and it's beautiful. Let me read you some other prophecies about the Messiah. Isaiah 49, 7. 
Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Jesus, towards the end of His life, quotes Psalm 22. And in Psalm 22, David kind of puts on this, this persona. He says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they make mouse at me, they wag their heads. The coming of the king was not going to be impressive. He's not going to come riding in on a white stallion with an army of hosts. This is Zechariah 9.9. He says, Behold, your king is coming to you. And everyone's expectations are rising up. Righteous and having salvation. And he'll be humble and mounted on a donkey. On the colt, the fowl of a donkey. And the most famously, Isaiah 53, 2-3. and 3, for he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground, that branch stick language. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not." The Savior, though he was the branch, though he was the one waiting for, he also was unknown and despised. Jesus is fulfilling the prophets and not in living a life of luxury, or he's only at the temple where everyone thought God was, or he, only was, he was set apart from all the dirtiness of people. Jesus was truly embodying the true meaning of Emmanuel, God with his people in their messiness. Jesus was already despised, rejected, and he would become a man of sorrow who knew what grief was. And I think if we take a few minutes, I think this is part of why followers of Jesus are so taken by him. Because he's a legit rabbi, teacher, he's Lord, but he gets the people and doesn't just make them look a certain way. Think about it, the sticks, where he's from, this Galilee area that has a ton of little tiny towns, right? The sticks area of Galilee is where he found most of his disciples. He didn't just grow up and then go back to Jerusalem and say, okay, give me your best. I'm the Messiah. I want all the A-listers. He says, no, I'll take, I'll take you right here, Philip. I'll take you, Peter. You're fishing. Drop your nets. Let's go, Right? There's no Jesus Timberlake here. He's not bringing sexy back, right? Thank you. Christy didn't like that one. But church, let's get real for a second. <laughs> Sorry, had to do it. Boo. How often do we want to make following Jesus attractive? Okay. How often do we want to say, no, 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 Jesus is cool. Jesus is, is from like all the cool stuff and, and the good spots, right? We dress up our Sundays, Right? And we want to we strive for excellence, but, you know, we're Hub City. <laughs> we, we, we do what we can. We dress up our Sundays. We act like we have it together sometimes in Christianity. We judge others for not having it right. Who are we called to follow? Cool Jesus. Hippie Jesus. American Jesus. Albany Jesus. We follow the Jesus who was a Nazarene. The Jesus whose attraction and authority was not even himself, but the life he lived submitted to the Father. 
Look at what Jesus says himself. John chapter 5, 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. The greater works than these he will he show him so that you may marvel. The Apostle Paul told us this about Jesus. He told him in the Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, the problem with God's people that happened all the way back, way before, and of course with sin, but to the Abrahamic covenant is that when they heard God was going to bless their nation and that they would be a blessing to all other nations, they interpreted that to be and look like they think it ought to look like. Right Today, God's redemption plan is through His people who make up His church. But we have to be careful not to take on that blessing for ourselves in that same mindset where we make it our expectation of what God has to do here. It's easy as a leader, it's easy for me to say, God, I just, you know what would be awesome? If you did these things. And then it would be great, you know? And like, that's not necessarily prayer. That's not, Lord, your will be done. That is like, can you just do what I want you to do, please, right? Jesus wasn't what anyone expected. So why do we put expectations on him now? If I was Jesus, this is how I would bless me. (laughs) But if Jesus didn't account equality with God, something to be grasped, we probably should not either, right? We as a church, we have the opportunity to show the world not how to play God, but show the world how to repent, how to confess in safe community, how to love one another in our brokenness, how to have grace, how to run to a savior instead of a substance, how to be thankful for what we, are, what we have and not envious of what we don't have, to put ourselves before God in surrender and obedience modeled by Jesus himself. And I think here's what we need to see this morning. The wise men who just visited the baby of Jesus, men of renown in their own rights, they vacated their thrones to bow down to Jesus. Herod was full of himself, jealous and prideful, and tried to get rid of Jesus so that he could keep his throne for himself. And often, these are two extremes, but often we can kind of fall on the pendulum swinging of one of these two. We, not, we might, not, might not be taking out toddlers, but is Jesus a threat to the life that we've built for ourselves? Can we willingly vacate our own thrones and submit to King Jesus? The reality is Jesus is the threat to the life we've built for ourselves. Again, he hasn't even taught a word yet, and already he's making ways with any and all earthly kingdoms. Jesus being this vision of the small branch of life eking out of what was dead and useless, this picture of what is happening in the world here, Jesus is the branch. 
Jesus is the life. Jesus is the start of something that the stump could never be on its own. Only by and through Jesus is the path to life. And on the deepest level of all human beings, like we all have the same need of that life. Right? We all need that. Whether you're born in poverty or possessions with family or orphaned, loved or despised, everyone can come to Jesus. Because in just the second chapter of Matthew, there's 28 of these guys, in the second chapter of Matthew, we see through the wise men, through Herod, through Egypt, through Nazareth, Jesus is already the king of the kings of this world. And Jesus is already the king of the lowly, the poor, and the despised. Jesus, he hits both extremes as king. The Jesus revealed in our scriptures is exactly what we need on the deepest level because he covers it all. This is why the gospel is good news. He truly is Emmanuel, God with his people. Right? From the highs to the lows, in the midst of their pain and difficulty and emotions and all that encompasses what it means to be human. And this is why we can go to any human in any circumstance and we can tell them about Jesus. Right? We can tell them about the good news, and it should be good news, unless we're refusing to get off the throne. Though Jesus is good news to those who believe, he is a great threat to those who want to keep their throne. The language of the branch is awesome, but don't forget about the stump. The stump was once a great tree of a nation who thought they were good enough without God. They were big enough, strong enough, could go high enough themselves, and they're a stump now. The stump of ancient Israel is a reminder of past mistakes, but the branch is the future hope of life for all who believe. So to practice putting ourselves in that kind of proper place, with all our various walks of life and faith backgrounds and everything, and all of us before the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to read a verse over us. We walked through the first part of Isaiah 53 earlier to show Christ to be despised, but Isaiah did not stop there. And I actually want to reread the chapter. It's only a few verses. But remember, this is way before Jesus' time in prophetic language. And I chose the, the message version, not for, not for theology. We use ESV here. But just it, I think the wording really gets to the gravity of what it is. So let us sit under Isaiah 53 today. Who believes what we've heard and seen? Who would have thought God's saving power would look like this? The servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over, a man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him, thought he was scum. But the fact is, it was our pains he carried, our disfigurements, all the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures, but it was our sins that did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him, our sins. He took the punishment, and that made us whole. Through his bruises, we get healed. We are all like sheep who've wandered off and gotten lost We've all done our own thing, gone our own way, and God has piled all our sins, everything we've done wrong, on him, 
on him. He was beaten. He was tortured. But he didn't say a word. Like a lamb taken to be slaughtered, like a sheep being sheared, he took it all in silence. Justice miscarried, and he was led off. And did anyone really know what was happening? He died without a thought for his own welfare, beaten bloody for the sins of my people. They buried him with the wicked, threw him in a grave with a rich man, even though he never hurt a soul or said one word that wasn't true. Still, it's what God had in mind all along, to crush him with pain. The plan was that he give himself as an offering for sin, so that he'd see life come from it, life, life, and more life. And God's plan will deeply prosper through him. Out of that terrible travail of soul, he'll see what it's worth it and be glad he did it. Through what he experienced, my righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous ones as he himself carries the burdens of their sins. Therefore, I'll reward him extravagantly, the best of everything, the highest honors, because he looked death in the face and didn't flinch, because he embraced the company of the lowest. He took on his own shoulders the sin of the many, and he took up the cause of all the black sheep. Man, if reading that doesn't want you, doesn't make you want to repent right here, right now, right? That is the word of God. And that was years, years before Jesus. And we know the story. Our worship of Jesus today, when we go to respond, our worship of Jesus of recognizing him as our only hope of righteousness is at the same time our confession of our utter inability to save ourselves. As Isaiah says, we like wandering sheep all have turned our own way and we will continue to do so unless the Lord, the one who saves us from our sins, takes the thrones of our lives. So can we do it? Can we willingly vacate the throne of our lives for Jesus the Nazarene? Could we become despised by the world so that Christ would be magnified and glorified? And just even here in Matthew 2, before he ever says a word of teaching or does a miracle, can we believe that this Jesus is the Christ? And let's respond to that. That's what we're responding to today. And it's not just this moment where we get to, we, you know what we do if you're here at Hub City, we sing praises of God, declare, declare that He is Lord. We pray with one another. We commune with God, right? We give. We have these earthly treasures. We've been, we've been blessed, right, to then be a blessing, to give to the church, to bless the community, and we talk about that in our family meetings or whatever, like how are we spending our money? How can we bless those around us? How can we actually flourish and raise up the city and the surrounding community? And we take communion because none of this matters. None of this matters without Christ. We're just a club. <laughs> We're just people that like each other, right? This is all because of Christ, because of his body broken and his, his blood shed for us. And this isn't just this moment here. I just I pray that we'd be a church that responds to this all week long, all life long, but all week, right? Every day just coming back to the reality that Jesus is Lord.
here's the throne today, Jesus. Sorry, I took it a little bit yesterday. <laughs> Sorry, I took it five minutes ago. It's back to you, right? Well, let's respond now, and let's keep that worship going all week long. Will you pray with me?